A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. It's May, May 29, 1992. Okay. Uh, do you remember the first fire you fought? Yeah. It was the middle of the day. It was like just afternoon or something. We were probably out on the roof sunbathing or something when it came in. And as soon as we heard the bells, we looked around. We could see the column of smoke and knew it was going good. I happened to be assigned to the hydrant that day. So first thing that happens, we get there two blocks shy of the fire, and they dump me off to hook up to the hydrant. So I, w I wasn't going to be the first one to go in. I just hooked up to the hydrant and uh, opened it up and then chased the water back to the fire truck. I happened to get my breathing apparatus on before the other guy did, before the other engines arrived. And as it worked out, I ended up going in first anyway. I'll always remember there was a very large 30-gallon aquarium in there on the mantle. The large goldfish, very large goldfish had all expired. I remember that significantly about it. My first fatal fire. As former fire captain John Orr walked in to be sentenced today, looking at his face, there was no clue to the madness that would cause him to set fires all over California, killing four people at Ole's home center in South Pasadena. Judge Robert Perry sentenced him to four life terms in prison without the possibility of parole. Okay, testing, check, check. Carrie! <laughs> Carrie! <laughs> what do we want to do, Ryan? Uh, okay, so earlier this year, I sat down with my producer, Ryan Swigert in the only place where we could talk at that point, a Zoom call. You could think of this case as a case that's closed. I mean, he's been found guilty. He's been convicted for a couple decades now. What, what sparked your interest back again? I've been fascinated by the parallel paths of me and John Orr. I found him at the beginning of my kind of working life as a storyteller. And, you know, it, it, his undoing was wanting to be a storyteller. You talk about it in like almost fatalistic terms, even the way that you found the story. You know, I happened to be driving 
I heard it on the radio about this. And I was going to this meeting where they brought up arson and I pitched this story. You know, these little coincidences. I, I, I think that's right. I do feel that there's some sort of fatal connection. Hopefully not fatal in the <laughs> dead sense of it, but like this odd story has kind of almost accidentally been a part of my life. It just keeps popping up. For seven years, Los Angeles County has burned at the hands of one man. Like, for example, a year after John was convicted of murder, I was working at HBO and I was assigned to oversee an HBO film about his life. John Orr. Now, typically these guys are loners. They have trouble with relationships. They have trouble with their jobs. Ray Liotta played John and he was great. But the movie wasn't great. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Did you ever wonder why John was so good at finding these time-delayed devices? Look at this. It's been rigged to keep the flame burning. Working on it, though, made me take another look at the case from the point of view of the investigators who caught Orr. And that was something I hadn't done before. Point of origin. Only from HBO Video. After my interview with Orr in 1992, my boss passed on doing a documentary about him. And all those tapes I'd made with him went into a friend's attic for safekeeping. And then, a couple of years ago, I got them back. And suddenly, I was listening to John Orr's voice again. Not too long ago. Oh, yeah, they accused me of that one. Did they? Sure. Mm-hmm. Who did? You know that. You don't pack my ear with this shit. It was about Wait two weeks before now, my look, arrest. John, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what they've accused you of. What did you think? I was, you know, I was embarrassed at how green I was. I really didn't know what I was doing um, in asking him questions. Okay, I, what I need you for you to do is, I, I need for you to give me a list of all the ones that they suspect you of. If you that would probably be hundreds. He did say at one point in the interviews that he would wake up in sweats, you know, at night. I didn't sleep at all, you know, in, in jail. I lost 18 pounds in 15 days. When I got out, same thing prevailed here. Waking up sweats three o'clock in the morning, Paranoid city for a while, just got, they're going to drop down and swoop on me again and drag me out of here for some reason. In his kind of daily consciousness, he was able to compartmentalize those emotions. But at night, I think he was having some trouble with reconciling everything. I was under a lot of paranoia and a little schizo. And I mean, I was under a lot of pressure because I'd just been released from jail. And the pressure of this thing was just insurmountable. As part of his defense, Orr had some psychological testing done, and I remember he showed me the reports. The psychological portrait indicates that there's no way you have the profile of a person capable of committing these arsons. Is that fair evaluation? That's, That's basically what it says. If he was really guilty of what he'd been convicted of, he'd fooled a lot of people. He fooled this psychologist, he fooled a lot of his colleagues, And he fooled me. But knowing more now, when I listen to these tapes, I feel like I can almost hear the wheels turning in his head. I I don't know if, like Ted Bundy or something, maybe he could pass that kind of test. uh, What do they call them? Uh, Sociopaths, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I agreed with the assessments uh, down the line. Is that the drive for you? To figure out what's going on in John Orr's head? It's such a mystery to so many people. 
like what's at the heart of the darkness there. I wanted to revisit the person I thought he was back in 1992 and, you know, see who that person had become 30 years later. I tracked him down at Mule Creek State Prison and I wrote to him and ultimately suggested he call me. That was how it started again. An inmate at the Mule Creek State Prison. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Hey, John. Hey, good morning. How you doing there? I'm doing all right. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Firebug. A high-ranking fire department official in Glendale, California, is being held without bail, charged with arson. They said, we know you did it all. Why did you do it? There was a kind of spookiness to his presence. I remember thinking, this guy, he's guilty. I wanted this person to know the damage that they did. You know, why would you do this to all these people? Where did my life go wrong to where I became this crazy arsonist burning the state of California down? I'd love to sit down across from John Orr and say, hey, what's going on here? Chapter 8, Call Me Back. This call is now being recorded. John? Okay, how's, how's this one? Is it better? Oh, much better. Much, much better, oh. yeah. All right, I'll, I'll have to remember to use this one in the future then. Yeah. Um, how are you doing? Uh, it's, uh, good. It's going to be a little noisy here. They're coming in and out of the yard at the top of the hour, so we can just have general conversation for a couple minutes until it settles down. The reason I reached out to you in the first place is that, you know, I met you 27 years ago, and this story has kind of stayed with me, and I'm really trying to get to the bottom of psychologically what's going on here. I, I don't, I mean, I you know, I'll be perfectly honest with you. As time has gone by and, you know, as you were convicted of these various fires, my instincts about your guilt or innocence moved away from significant skepticism toward more concern that these allegations may well be true. Your feelings about my guilt or innocence is, is not relevant to me. You know, you go ahead because uh, and whatever you say or do is, is okay. I've, I've been beat up in the press so many times before uh, that, uh, you know, it's okay. So whatever questions you want to ask, I will open up to you freely and completely. For the past two years, I've been talking with John Orr over the phone in prison. This call is now being recorded. Hi, John. How you doing? Hey. Good weekend. Okay, I'm recording this, John. Okay, I agree. Now being recorded. How are you? Uh, not bad, not bad. Enjoying the hot weather. Over that time, I've had conversations with him about everything I could think of. His life in prison. Most of these guys in here are psychopaths or sociopaths of some kind or another. And the books he's reading. The tattoo girl. I, I can't remember the title. Right yeah, now. girl with the dragon tattoo. My dog. Uh, what the heck was that? That's our dog. That's Gracie. That's, that's great. We got 
We've discussed all of it in 15-minute increments. You have 60 seconds remaining. Before the prison phone system shuts us down, and he has to call me back. Okay, you want to call me back? Yes, Dad, I'll call you right back. 60 seconds remaining. Do you want to call me back? I'm going to recall you and start it up again. And in all that time, Orr hasn't wavered on his innocence. He's filed appeal after appeal. He has one pending right now. And we've spent hours talking about the minutia of his case. Uh, this final appeal will, will address the issues that... Uh... The calls always end the same, with a plan to talk again. Okay, John, um, I will talk to you a, a week from next Monday, okay? Okay. Uh, well, you stay healthy then, and check your smoke detector batteries. Take care of yourself. <laughs> I will. Take care. Bye. Bye. What does Orr want from you? I, I mean, I, I certainly think he appreciates the companionship because he does not have many people in his life anymore. And so I'm somebody to talk to, for sure. I'm also somebody that can periodically give him information. Have you been able to locate uh, any of my ex-wives? I have not, I've not reached out to anybody from your personal life. He's asked me for acquaintances of his or friends of his or girlfriends of his. I won't do that. What do you want to get from these conversations with him? What are you looking for? I'm looking for him to give as honest a presentation of reality as he's capable of giving. So so what I'd like for you to think about is if there's anything that you did that was illegal in your past that you would feel comfortable talking about now? No, like you were expecting. I'd rather not have you spring things on me. I don't have anything at the moment that I was intending to spring on you. You're not going to get any huge revelations of any kind. Uh, you might get something along the lines of I was hunting with my buddy uh, in high school and we shot at a hawk and it uh, ended up the hawk was on the uh, telephone wire, telephone wire was actually struck and it fell down. That, that's a terrible thing, you know. We were both astonished that it happened. That's the kind of stuff that you're going to get. We've talked to a lot of investigators and prosecutors for this series, and I've learned a lot more about the case against him in the course of doing that. So I've begun to challenge him on the details of his story, and I don't know if you've noticed, but there are moments when he just goes dark on me. And when I say dark, I mean he gets angry and frustrated and wants to end the calls. That doesn't line up. Well, it, it lines up. I just I don't have the, the exact dates in front of me, and it's still not fresh in my mind. Right. You know, it's just too many dates and times for me to be accurate. And if you're looking to find I, I, I understand that, John. Line, I'm, I'm, I know I'm, that's what you're looking to do. And I, you know, I can't. Dates are going to get mixed up a little bit. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm not talking about dates here. What you're looking for is aberration or, or anomalies or something in my recollection. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm actually, I'm not looking for aberrations. I'm just looking for things to line up. We have 60 seconds remaining. Um, I'd love to save that one until next time. There was a period of time where he got so frustrated that he just stopped calling me altogether. But even then, for some reason, he ended up reaching out again. This 
is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. Make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. This call is now being recorded. Okay, we're recording again. Okay, um, let's make this the last one. I think maybe some of the people are looking at the phone. Great. For the past two years, I've been talking to John Orr in prison, trying to get a better sense of who he is and where he came from. Any memorable fires that you observed in your childhood? Probably when I was about four or five, six years old. On a really rainy night, about two blocks away, there was a, uh, a roaring house fire going on. We heard the fire trucks, and we put on our raincoats and walked two blocks up there, me and my brothers. And it was actually the home of a couple of kids we went to school with. The three young kids were left alone by themselves without a babysitter. They managed to set a couch on fire and ended up uh, taking the whole house down. We were approached by a L.A. City Fire Department employee who had gone to high school with John, and he felt that John had this unusual fascination with fire as a teenager. This is former Deputy District Attorney Mike Cabral. In the years leading up to Orr's murder trial, Cabral looked into his past. We decided, let's see what we can find out about his childhood, whatever information we could get on fires, kind of along the general route that he would take to school from his home. We saw this whole history of somebody's pulling the fire alarms. Uh, and then we also saw this history of alley and trash can fires along those same general paths. And it seemed to be this progression, you know, the pulling of the alarms, then the setting of small fires, then that escalates to a little bit larger fires. Whether he did them or not, we have no way of establishing it, but it certainly seemed to fit the pattern of things that you would expect to see in a budding fire setter. Right out of high school, 
or join the Air Force as a fireman stationed overseas. And, you know, we found the same type of behavior occurring, that there were fires being set in locations where he was stationed. We certainly couldn't establish whether he set them or not, but it seemed to match the general pattern we were looking at. When Orr was discharged from the Air Force, he returned to the L.A. area and applied to the LAPD. At first, he wanted to be a cop. And I went through the selection process for LAPD and uh, passed everything except the psychological. And the psychological, they turned me down without much of an explanation. It was just depressing because they don't tell you why. You know, they don't say, well, you're a flaming nut. Orr wouldn't have seen the results of his psychological evaluation at the time, but I came across them years later. Non-acceptable applicant. Reason for rejection based on his past history and test results. Currently having marital problems with separation. Recently walked off a job, gave no notice. Supervisors gave him a poor evaluation, described him as a goof-off, know-it-all, irresponsible and immature. Rorschach showed him as passive, indecisive, with problems with women and sex. A schizoid person who is withdrawn from people. Diagnosis? Personality trait disturbance. Emotionally unstable personality. That assessment was very different from the psychological report Orr had shown me years earlier. And reading it, I was shocked. I realized that if I wanted to get into Orr's head, I needed to talk to an expert. My name's Ed Nordskog. I was an arson and bomb investigator for Los Angeles sheriffs. I worked on 2,100 arson cases, arrested 330-plus arsonists, interviewed them. As a profiler, I teach classes all around the world on serial arsonists. John Orr is such a unique and bizarre individual that uh, this is probably one of the most fascinating cases in all of criminal justice. There has been no other serial arsonist like him. After Orr was rejected from the LAPD, things didn't get better for him. He washed out of the L.A. Fire Department's training program. He wasn't in good enough physical shape. Finally, he made it on to a fire department in the city of Glendale, which is a very nice city. It's virtually crime-free, and especially was back in the 80s. Not much going on. We didn't have a whole lot of fires back uh, when I first came on for three or four or five years, uh, but uh, we started getting more fires. John Orr gets on a department that doesn't even have an arson unit, and he helps create a job for himself because he starts lighting a whole bunch of fires in his own city. By the mid-80s, arson fires were up 58% in Glendale. Orr quickly developed a reputation as an excellent investigator who could always find what started a fire. John Orr found more devices himself in his quiet little town than the entire L.A. Basin all put together over a 10-year period. And all these other investigators are going, man, I've been working for 20 years. I've never found anything like that. And that's, that's the reality. We don't find things like that. Nordskog says that even as Orr's reputation as an arson investigator was on the rise, he never forgot being rejected by the LAPD. He wanted to be a cop so bad. He wanted recognition from L.A. sheriffs, LAPD. He really liked homicide cops. Even the cops in Glendale wouldn't give Orr the recognition he craved. The cops used to laugh at him in his town. 
They called him Two-Gun John or Three-Gun John because he would carry multiple firearms. Why? You're a fire investigator in a town with no violence. When I listened to my first interview with Orr, he seems torn between wanting to be a cop and his anger toward cops for rejecting him. I really don't get along that well with most cops. I'm a fireman first. I just happen to have this intuitive power to to go after an investigation like they do. And and a lot of them have a professional grudge against me because of that. They say, well, I'm just a, a wannabe trying to be a cop, you know. Well, fuck it, I am a cop. There's evidence in his briefcase and in his house after he was arrested that he was posing as various cops when he was on or off duty. He had multiple badges. John Orr constantly was giving press interviews. He wanted to be famous. We have some very good leads, and uh, some of the evidence matches up with this individual and ties him into the fires. He wanted to be known. He wanted to be respected. And he couldn't get it by his work, so he's going to get it somehow, some way. Nordskog says Orr got respect by lighting arson fires and then solving them. He's involved in 1,200-plus fires, and people think it's a lot more than that. And he got satisfaction from getting away with it. It was a huge thrill for him to outwit a lot of people who always joked about him. In hindsight, looking at his actions and what he was doing, he fits a very, very fringe group of thrill-seeker arsonists. And that's somebody who's doing it with a very high chance of getting caught. You can look in the L.A. Times archives and see a half a dozen photos of John Orr holding evidence in front of the media cameras. It's the ultimate thrill-seeking. Points of origin is just another facet of that. I'm basically going to confess in a book about what I've been doing for the past five, seven years under the very noses of these investigators from these big agencies. And that's the thrill-seeking aspect of it. Ed points out that there is another type of criminal known to be a thrill-seeker, the serial killer. You remember that tall guy, six foot ten, Ed Kemper? He, at the end of his career, became a thrill-seeker. He was actually a ride-along with the police. And he started talking about all these missing co-eds, teasing the cops with information. That's a thrill-seeker. John did something that you only see in serial killers and serial rapists. He prowls, he hunts, he's a troller, as, as they say in the profiling world. He loved his alone time. He loved to be out in a car by himself, prowling, trolling, hunting. And Orr's job as an arson investigator gave him unlimited time to do just that. It was great, and we had a lot of freedom. We were on our own all the time. Nobody looking over our shoulders, and that, that for me is great. The one guy to me out there in the world that reminds me of John Orr in his deeds, actions, and, and physical appearances uncanny is the BTK killer out of Wichita. He sat and planned and schemed his crimes for months, if not years. John Orr planned some of his fires a year in advance. And like Orr, the BTK killer liked to tease law enforcement. He kept bringing attention to himself. He's the one that reached out to the media over and over again. I think they're virtually the same guy, except one guy killed people, one guy lit fires. But there's a key difference between a serial arsonist and a serial killer. And strangely, Orr noted that difference in my interview with him in 1992. A murderer is a, an aggressive individual that 
confronts their victim and beats, shoots, maims, kills somehow or another, physically facing that person. An arsonist is a weak, insecure, non-aggressive type of personality, typically. Listening to this, I'm starting to think that Orr might be talking about himself. An arsonist may want to kill somebody, but they can't do it face to face to you because they're just too weak. They can't do it. But they'll go outside your back door and, you know, throw gasoline against your house and set your house on fire. Is Meghan Markle like Princess Diana? Or is she just a social climber? I was silent. Were you silent or were you silenced? Is she a breath of fresh air or a master manipulator? That's what we're going to find out on my podcast, Infamous. Apparently ambition is a terrible, terrible thing. We'll look at what happened when two dysfunctional families came together. It's the family that I suppose she's never had. And how Meghan and Harry going Hollywood all went down. Only on the podcast, Infamous. What if you could become stronger, more resilient, cure disease, and all you have to do is get naked in the cold and breathe? You get into ice water, and instead of, like, freaking out, you relax. It's called the Wim Hof Method, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Justin Bieber love it. I do the ice plunge because it's good for your body. But there's also a dark side. How many people have died doing the Wim Hof Method? We can override even death! Listen on the podcast Infamous. That's Infamous, playing now. Ed Nordskog has interviewed many serial arsonists, but he's never interviewed John Orr. I'm aware of you spoke to him quite a bit. I know quite a few people who visit him. He has never come clean to anybody ever that I know of. Everybody that I know that spoke to him has come back disappointed. If you approach an interrogation or an interview as a chance to get a confession, you're approaching it wrong. It's a chance to get information that you don't have. And, and, and any information is good. Even a lie is good. Because now, why is he lying about this? Why is he lying about that? Maybe the most important way that Orr's story has changed since the first time I talked to him back in 1992 is in regards to the fire at the Ole's home center. Ole's burned to the ground, and they basically the LA County Sheriff's took over the investigation and called it an accidental fire, even though there was two potato chip fires on each side of it. And that was totally bogus. Totally wrong. It was not an accidental fire. At the time, Orr felt that the fact that there were two other arson fires close by that night was definitive proof that Oles was arson too. Let's talk about the Oles fire. Oles, uh, South Pasadena. Your instincts as an arson investigator at the time were that it was absolutely intentional. I believe that your feeling now is that that was an accidental fire. Is that true? Yes. It stands to reason that with the other two fires in the area, it's very bizarre that there would be an accidental fire at almost the same time period. With all the serial arsonists that I've apprehended, they watch their fires. They need to be there as the activity is going on. And the Vons Market potato chip fire in South Pasadena and the Oles fire ignited within minutes of each other. It totally takes the joy of an arsonist uh, watching his activities out of it. 
And why would he set two fires where he couldn't stand there and watch both of them? Uh, that, that just to- totally leans towards the accidental. I'm, I'm so surprised to hear you say this. I mean, just because as a, as a really kind of deductive arson investigator, with your experience, the strong presumption would be that these would be connected. Just as an arson investigator, it, it... You have 60 seconds remaining. I know what you're trying to say, that, you know, how can I be making a statement that those two could have been separate on the always night? You know what, John? Let's, yeah. let's return to this... And, and again, okay. it's like I, yeah. I'm I'm just looking for a plausible explanation. Right, right. All, All right, right great. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Does he think that you believe him to be innocent at this point? I think he thinks I suspect he's guilty, but I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. You know. He never asks me what I think about his guilt or innocence. It just doesn't get talked about at all. But sometimes I'll call him out on something, some detail in his story that doesn't make any sense. And I'll think, okay, that's it. He's done. He's going to stop talking to me for good now. And then a week or two will go by and I'll get another call from him. This call is now being recorded. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hey. Good weekend. It was, uh, yeah, it was good. It was like good. nothing ever happened. Okay. Either one of my daughters or both of them. No, I, as I said, um, I haven't reached out to anybody from your past. It's just that we're still still somewhat estranged and we don't correspond regularly. He still asks me for contact information for his old girlfriends, for his ex-wives, for his daughters. And I would never give him that information. But his asking made me realize that I can't get the full picture on John Orr without the perspectives of the people who knew him best. Or at least who thought they did. Dad got mad at someone who had cut him off and pulled the guy over. And then he reached over in front of us and took out a gun. That's next week on Firebug. Firebug is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. It was created in association with Crime Story Media. This episode of Firebug was produced by Ryan Swikert, with help from Neil Denatia, W. Harry Fortuna, and Michelle Lance. Ryan Swikert is our senior producer. Story editing by Mark Smerling. Carrie Antholis, that's me, is your host and executive producer. Kevin Shepard and Alessandro Santoro are associate producers. Our archive producer is Brennan Reese. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Michael Blumenfeld did the mix. Sound design by Michael Blumenfeld and Ryan Swigert. Music by Kenny Kusiak, John Kusiak, and Marmoset. Our title track is Young Men Dead by Black Angels. Continue the conversation with us online by tweeting at Firebug Podcast. I've been blown away by all of the reviews left by fans of the show. So if you like the show, leave us a review. It really helps. And as always, thanks for listening.